around you. It might be in this, underneath the seat in front of you or in a chair to the left or right of you. But go ahead and open up to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to continue our series here um, today. It's going to wrap it up. We've been five weeks in the book of Jonah. We've been looking at this idea of what it takes um, from God's Word, His challenge to us to be toward the city. Um, So we've been saying this from week to week. We've been looking at from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, the idea of the gospel, how we're to be rooted in that gospel, but the gospel isn't just for us. It's not salvation comes to us and we just camp on salvation. Um, Thank God it came to us, but who gives a rip about anyone else? That's not the biblical um, attitude. That's not God's heart for the lost. Salvation comes to us so we can be used as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to extend the mercy of to extend the grace, to extend the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could have communion, so that you could have fellowship, so that you could have relationship with God. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to Jonah chapter 4 today. And what you're going to see as we start getting into it is that Jonah chapter 4, it is the linchpin of this entire book. So it's got four chapters. The book of Jonah, small, short, sweet, to the point, excellent story. The narrators put together a great short story about this episode, this season in the prophet Jonah's life. But all these little tidbits that are just sort of hanging out in the air as Jonah's been interacting with the sailors, as he's been interacting with the Ninevites, as God has been interacting with him in the belly of the great fish. There's just sort of these these ideas, these heart attitudes. What was Jonah actually thinking in the midst of all these things? And we don't get that truth about what was going on in Jonah, the heart attitude that he had in the midst of all this until Jonah chapter 4. And so the narrator of the book of Jonah with purpose has put a bunch of information about what was going on in Jonah's life. Jonah was a prophet on the run and Jonah was going to see God extend compassion to him. Come and reach down to him. We've seen mercy come to the Ninevites last week. It was born out of the heart of compassion for those people who do not know anything about the one true God. And we're going to see God extend compassion to his prophet today. Because you're going to see like the, uh, the ugly, dark underbelly of Jonah's heart. We're going to read a lot of things today where you're just going to, you're meant to just read it and go, man, like that's just odious. Like that's, that's not right. That's not a right way of thinking. And it's going to be a challenge to us once we get through the end of Jonah chapter 4. God is pursuing his prophet, and we're going to see God hunt him down. God is the hound of heaven. He is going to come and grab his prophet, and he's going to insert with particular emphasis something into his life and almost grab him by the collar and just shake him awake to help him see that your heart attitude towards the lost is not God's heart attitude towards the lost. So the point from Jonah chapter 4 that we're going to see is this. It's very similar to last week, but it's a little bit nuanced. Last week we saw that our God is a God of mercy. Jonah preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people hear. God empowers his message. The people believe in God. They repent of the evil and the violence that was in their hands. God relented of the disaster, the judgment He was going to bring to His people, bring to Nineveh. 
But today what we're going to see is that God is not only a God of mercy, but He's also a God of compassion. He has pity for them. He sees these people of Nineveh. He sees His prophet Jonah as a people who are significant, who have value, who have dignity, who have worth, because they are created in the image of God. So let's read Jonah chapter 4. What we're going to do is read the whole entire chapter, verses 1 through 11. I'll pray. And then what we'll do is we'll give a couple more introductory things that will just help us place ourselves in the context of just what is going on here in these events of Jonah chapter 4. And then we will fire into it. So as we read, I want you to notice these things. That Jonah is going to respond to God's mercy. In the first four verses, we're going to see that mercy's come to the Ninevites and Jonah's going to respond, but not the way that we would expect him to respond. He's back to responding wrongly to God. Jonah is going to respond to God with a very angry prayer. You're going to see that in the first four verses. And in verses 5 through 11, what you're going to see is that God is going to respond to Jonah's anger with an act of compassion. So let's read. These are the words of God to us. Through his word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. God, you are a God of compassion. Your mercy extends to those who are undeserving. And I ask that you would come and dwell among your people this morning, that you would take my words and move our hearts. Help us to see Springfield with the same eyes with which you saw Nineveh. Help us, please, help us to pity Springfield 
Help our hearts to break for the spiritual darkness of our neighbors and fill us with compassion that leads to gospel proclamation. God, we need you. We need you, Father, to lead us. We need you to lead us to be agents in the kingdom of Christ that live our lives faithfully representing King Jesus to all that we meet. God, I pray that the Spirit of God would come and fill our lives We are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit leading us and filling us, correcting us and rebuking us. God, I need the Holy Spirit to come and to open the hearts of the hearers before me. God, I need the Holy Spirit to come and to empower my words right now because I don't want this just to be merely me talking for three quarters of an hour. God, this isn't just some formulate sentence that I'm saying. I'm not just trying to press the right buttons, but we need God to come and dwell in our midst so that we would be employed as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, opening ourselves to the moving of the Spirit. So when God says, go and do this, we go and do this with great joy because we are being used as agents of mercy, taking the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified to our neighbors, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces. God, this will not happen. Springfield will not be turned upside down for the gospel apart from a revival of the Holy Spirit first breaking out in our hearts. And so, God, I ask that you would do this in our midst first and would the overflow of the goodness and the mercy and the grace that we have tasted spill out of this place, out of these four walls, filling the brim of Springfield full and over seeing our city dumped on its head because Jesus Christ was in our midst. God, this is how it's going to happen. And may it first start here with me and may it first start here with my brothers and my sisters. And I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. When you turn to Jonah chapter 4, what you get, as I said earlier, is the linchpin of the book of Jonah. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, we see Jonah interacting. There's various episodes going on in his life. But through the midst of this, we, we, we think Jonah is, is going to do right, but then he does wrong in chapter 1. But then God saves him and extends mercy to him in Jonah chapter 2. And we, we think, man, okay, Jonah's on the upshot here, right? Like, he's figuring stuff out. He, he ends chapter 2 with this praise to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We, we see that he has tasted. We see that he has seen. He's, he's been saved by God and it's like, yeah, man, I think Jonah's, he's heading down the right path. Then you go into Jonah chapter 3, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And he, he does what he's supposed to do, and he goes and he preaches. God empowers his preaching. Nineveh is changed. And we go, yeah, I think, I think Jonah's got this, right? Like, he was wrong. God intervenes. His heart's been changed, and now good and right things are coming. But when you come to Jonah chapter 4... The narrator comes and he gives us these two episodes, the episode of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, to teach us that in the midst of all of this, Jonah's heart wasn't quite in the place that we thought it was. Jonah's heart attitude wasn't the heart attitude of God. It wasn't the heart attitude of God back in chapter 1 when the word of the Lord came to him the first time. 
It wasn't right with God through that whole stormy sea episode. It wasn't right with God necessarily. There's a tinge of rightness that comes when he's saved in the belly of the well, but you're going to read that he was only glad because it happened to him. Because what we see in Jonah chapter 3 is the exact same mercy that was extended to him in Jonah chapter 2 is the exact same thing that happens to the Ninevites. And what do you get in Jonah chapter 4? Jonah shows up on the scene and seeing that God relented of the disaster of the judgment he is going to bring to the Ninevites, seeing that the Ninevites actually turned from their violence and their evil ways, what does verse 1 start off with? Verse 1 starts off with this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So what is the it there? It displeased Jonah. If we could pull up Jonah, sit him down and have a little conversation and go, Jonah, so what was the thing that you're just so bent about? What is the thing going on in your heart right now to where you come up and you step up on the scene and go, you know what? Through everything that I've just experienced, there is something that is just meant. It's just getting me. I am angry with God right now. And the it comes back to all the instances of everything that happened back in Jonah chapter 3. The Ninevites actually repented. I don't like that. God actually relented. Like, he believed the repentance. God, I don't like that. And there's an interesting play on words going on here because when you go through Jonah chapter 3 and you get to chapter 3, verse 10, there's a certain word that's just been popping up all over through the book of Jonah. There's a certain word in the Hebrew language there that carries this idea of evil. But it's not just merely evil. It can have this nuance of displeasure, disaster, discomfort. So when you see those words in your Bible, what we see is this, is that Nineveh was marked by a people who were marked with evil. They had evil in their hearts. They had evil desire. They had evil intentions. Then they turn from that evil. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disasters. That same word. He relented of the evil, of the judgment that He was going to bring to them. And what the narrator does is he comes and he gives us Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, when it says, But it displeased Jonah. That word displeased is the exact same word. So Nineveh, marked by evil, marked by disaster. God relents of the disaster. And the narrator goes, you know what? Now there's someone else who's in the exact same boat that Nineveh was. The attitude of evil, the attitude of disaster, the attitude of I don't like what God is doing has now been no longer Nineveh, but has now been transferred over to Jonah. In the original language there, it's this idea of this. It's not, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, but it's, it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. Because in the Hebrew language, you can use a verb and you can use a noun. They've got the same root and you can use the same idea as a way to express that idea as a verb and express that idea as a noun. It would be like me going, hey, man, I just saw a movie last night. And you might come up and go, well, how was the movie? I'm like, it was awful, man. It was a bad movie. Well, how awful was it? Like I say, that was the awfulest bunch of awful I ever awfuled. Like that's the way that you would convey that. Like that's what's going on in Jonah chapter 1. So if you could pull again up Jonah up here, like Jonah... How, how pleased are you with God that he has relented of the disaster that he was going to bring to Jonah? And Jonah could be like, that was the evilest bunch of evil I have ever eviled when I saw God relent of the disaster he was going to bring to Nineveh. 
And, and it's meant to just sort of shock us and be like, like, why? Like, why are you thinking in this way? See, Jonah's reaction to God's mercy is anger. Jonah hated what God had done, and it made him furious. Jonah had hoped to the end that destruction would come to the Ninevites. Remember, he came saying, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. Forty days goes by, and Nineveh is trucking along like normal. Nothing has happened. The thing that he said is not coming true. And you almost get this sense welling up in Jonah's heart of him going, God, Lord God, Yahweh, how could you do such a thing? Like, these are the Ninevites, right? Like, how could you relent of the judgment that's supposed to come to them? They are awful. They are oppressing your people, Israel, us, Hebrews. This is like our mortal enemy. How in the world could you relent of the disaster, the judgment that you are going to bring to them? And the moment that that sentence, that question crosses his mind, how could you do such a thing? He gives us the answer in verses 2 and verses 3. Because what he does on the heels of this displeasing thing that God has done and being angry is that he turns and he prays to the Lord. So, so Jonah isn't all bad, right? I mean, he models something healthy for us here. He models this idea of him praying. Like you and me, usually when we're in a funky mood or we are bent against God, God, how could you do this thing to me? Usually the last thing we want to do is go to God in prayer about it. So Jonah models something healthy for us. He knows who he needs to talk to, and he goes and he talks to him. But still, he's going with a, just a bent heart attitude, isn't he? So what does he say? He says, so we finally get the idea, like this is why he ran. So when we read back in Jonah chapter 1, the first three verses, God comes and says, you're the man, go to Nineveh. Jonah stands up and goes, I've heard what you said, I'm going to Tarshish. And you sort of go, why? Like, why? Like, what's so hard about you going to Tarshish, going to Nineveh right now? And it's all the way over in Jonah chapter 4. We hear why Jonah took tail and ran in the complete opposite geographical direction of Nineveh. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why did you make haste? This reason. Because, God, I know that you are a gracious God. You are a merciful God. You are a slow-to-anger God. You are an abounding and steadfast love God. You are a relenting from disaster God. It's like, ooh, I don't know that those are such bad, bad things on God's part, you know? See, Jonah had right theology... He knew right things about God, but it was leading him to disobey in that moment because what was more cherishing in his heart, the thing he cherished more was, you're calling me to my enemy. The very person, the very last people on earth, I want to see your mercy be extended to. And if I go there, God, I know you're going to do what you do well. You're going to extend mercy. And I don't want that. Yeah, I'm glad if mercy comes to me, but if mercy comes to Nineveh, no. So you're not going to use me as an agent of mercy, so what's he do? Off he goes. You call, not going, opposite direction. So you see Jonah wrestling with this thing. It's this confession of an angry prophet. Jonah did not want the Lord to do what was right and proper according to his merciful nature. 
Jonah's angry prayer, in its essence, is an argument with God, complaining about God's goodness. I mean, have you been there before? <laughs> right? God I, God, I know you're so good here, and I don't like it. It's absurd when you hear other someone else say it, but you and I live in this tension all the time going, God, I know why you're doing this to me, but I don't like it. God, I know why you're planting this thing in my life, but I don't, I don't like it. God, you've called me to do, to do this thing. I just know if I open my mouth and talk to this person about Jesus, this person's probably going to repent and believe, but God, I, I don't want to see that happen to this person. And so what do you do? You don't, you don't open your mouth. See, Jonah becomes for us an example of what not to do. So what's his response here? This is the evilest bunch of evil ever. God, this is why I ran, because I know you're so good. And if this is the kind of God you are, it'd be better for me to die. I would rather die than live in a world where you extend mercy to people like the Assyrians. I mean, that's strong language. So what does God do? God comes back and in response to Jonah's death wish, gives him this probing question. And this probing question is going to pop up later in Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. And in our, in our um, response, as we're going to see how do we respond to this text, this is going to become the linchpin. So this is important for you to hang on to. God comes and, ba- and points his finger in Jonah's chest and says, do you do well to be angry? Some of your translations might go like this. What right do you have to be angry at me extending mercy to the Ninevites? Like, what right do you have? And so then what happens is in the storyline here, we hit pause. And what we actually do is it's like a flashback episode. We go back because verses 1 through 4 are actually Jonah's final concluding thoughts. After 40 days have gone by, Jonah catches the net. He realizes, okay, God's actually going to relent. Like, we know that God has relented because of Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, but Jonah doesn't know that. Forty days go by and Jonah's like, I can't believe this. God is actually going to relent of disaster. And this becomes a thing that's so displeasing to him. The narrator puts that idea up front and smashes it against the end of Jonah chapter 3 so we can see this extremely sharp tension that just sort of shocks us awake and go, good grief. Like, why is he thinking in this way? And then the narrator goes, that's not, that. that's not the only thing. God actually cared enough to insert an object lesson into Jonah's life way before those 40 days went by. Why? Because God's God of compassion. Like, God's not happy that Jonah's here. God loves Jonah enough to go, bro, your heart attitude's not right. We need to see this change. And so what's the narrator do? He steps back in time almost when he's writing his book and basically goes, okay, here's verses 5 through 11. Here's an example of what God did to extend compassion to his prophet so that it would be one more way that mercy is extended to Jonah so that Jonah could see that his attitude towards mercy, mercy good for me, mercy bad for you, that hard attitude is bent. It's wrong. It's askew. So what's he do? God responds to Jonah's anger. He's going to give him a lesson on compassion. Jonah has misguided hope. So when you read verse 5, it says Jonah. So if you think now, if we're like going chronologically, so what happened in Jonah chapter 3 is he enters the west side of the city. Nineveh is a three-day journey. He goes in about a day. He's preaching and he's teaching. What happens? The people hear, they believe in God, and they repent. 
And I think what we're supposed to assume from Jonah chapter 4, verse 5, is that as Jonah is making his way through the city, he goes his second day, he goes his third day, enters out on the east side of the city, and goes, you know what, I know that what happened back on day one, I know people were hearing, I know people were repenting, I know people were believing in God, but I just want to see, I don't know if the Nineveh's repentance was that true, was that good. So you get the sense that he goes out on the east side of the city, finds a nice little rock, parks, sits on the edge of that rock, and just is sort of leaning forward. I think God's about to turn this place into Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, right, Genesis 18 is rolling through his mind. I think we're about to see fire and brimstone come pouring down on this place. I mean, if Nineveh is awful, or if Sodom and Gomorrah are awful, how much more is Nineveh awful? And you see this idea, Jonah has misguided hope. His hope is misguided. He knows that the people had believed in God and responded to his message, but somehow Jonah is still hoping that God will overturn the city. And what does God do? Intervenes. And you get verses 6, 7, and 8. And what does God do? He comes and he gives him a little parable, basically, from nature to show him that your love for mercy is not a wrong love. It's just misapplied. So what does God do? God appoints a plant. It's that same language as God appointing a great fish. God, the Lord God, Jonah's God, our God, your God, my God. He is the God of heaven, the God over sea, God over land. God is appointing great fish to intervene in Jonah's life, to teach him lessons on mercy. And God is about to appoint a plant, the same language. He's about to appoint a worm, the same language. He's about to appoint a scorching east wind. God is sovereignly orchestrating his world of creation so that it will funnel down to Jonah and go, listen, man, you're not thinking correctly. You're not thinking correctly. And it's just so interesting because when you read Jonah chapter six and it says God appointed a plant and why did God appoint that plant? It was appointing a plant to save him from his discomfort. And again, it's that same word, evil, disaster, displeasure, discomfort. And again, the narrator is showing us there's a play on words going on here because yes, Nineveh is Mosul, Iraq today. It's hot there. So there's a sense of discomfort of just Jonah living in this Iraqi noonday sun and God is going to appoint a plant to come up and deliver him from his discomfort. But there's also a wordplay on here because what other discomfort, what other evil, what other disaster is going on in Jonah's life? It's his hard attitude. And God is about to insert something into his life for good and to take that good away so that Jonah will see you need to be saved from the evil heart attitude that you have in regard to you loving mercy only for you and not for people who deserve mercy just as much as you. There's irony here. The plant pops up. God appoints it. And look at that last part of verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And that word exceedingly, again, it's that same, it's that same grammar that's going on back in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. You could say it like this. So Jonah was glad, with very glad heart, because of the plant. He was glad of the gladdest glad that he's ever been because that plant has popped up to bring him mercy and to save him from his discomfort. And there's just irony there. Commentator Doug Stewart said this, Jonah's actions in that moment of being so exceedingly glad because the plant popped up to save him from his discomfort 
betrayed his inconsistency. The plant suddenly appeared and grew very quickly. Jonah was once again on the receiving end of God's mercy. Such gifts were fine with him only as long as they were, also, were not also given to his enemies, the Ninevites. A general rejoicing in Nineveh over deliverance from divine wrath would infuriate Jonah, but personally, his own special good fortune resulting from an act of pure divine grace was a great delight. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but Jonah was exceedingly wrong in his attitude. He's more glad for the plant than he was for revival in Nineveh, more glad for the plant than he was at his second chance from God, more glad for the plant than he was for his deliverance from death by the great fish. And God not only appoints a plant, but a worm and a wind. The worm comes, it chews at the base of that plant, the plant withers, and then what does God do? He appoints a scorching east wind. There's a phenomenon that takes place in the Middle East there, and it's called a Sirocco, and it's a hot east wind. So I was in the military, and I was deployed to Iraq, spent a year there, and like I know of it, like, it's like I know about the exceedingly scorching hot east wind. Like, the only thing, I came back from Iraq, and a lot of people were like, so what was it like, you know? How hot was it? And I'm just like, man, you know, it's just different here, because here there's humidity, right? You walk outside, you can just like feel it clinging on you. In Iraq in the summer, it's like cranking your oven up to like, say, 140, 200 degrees, and like you just, it, it builds up, and it builds up, and it builds up, and you open that door, and there's just sort of that hot, venting, dry blast that just hits your face. Like, you, that's just what you're living in all the time. And so just like if, if it's wintertime here, it can be 32 degrees, but if there's a strong wind, the wind goes to magnify that coldness and make it feel even colder. We call it a wind chill. The Sirocco is doing that like in the opposite direction. So it's already hot because you're like you're living in an oven, and then this wind comes and it like magnifies the heat to where the language of Jonah chapter 4 is this, is it's like the, the wind that God appointed came and took the sun and was using the sun to beat down and to attack Jonah to the point where the text says like he wanted to faint. Like, that's just how awful the heat is. And what is his conclusion he draws? He draws his conclusion. Good grief. I'm out here waiting for God to pour out vindication on these people. And God, now you're bringing a, a plan. I'm thankful for that. But now the worm, now the wind, now the sun, now the heat. What's his conclusion? Same conclusion he drew back earlier in verse 3. It's just better for me to die. Like, I would rather die and be removed out of this situation than have to sit through and see and wait if God is going to actually do something about the Ninevites. So what does God do? He doesn't leave his prophet there. But he responds with the exact same response that he gave earlier. Do you do well to be angry? But this time, because it's an object lesson, what does he do? He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? What right do you have to be angry for the plant? This was an object lesson. This wasn't God exacting vengeance upon his prophet. This isn't just some way to make Jonah's life full of misery, but this is a pure, divine act of love. God is intervening in his life, putting something hard in his life. See, see God has put some hard things in your guy's life right now. 
Some of you are dealing with some of the nastiest stuff in your life, and it's because of this. You think you have a right heart attitude with God, but you don't. And it's not God being malevolent. It's not God going, good grief, that guy, that girl. Here they go again, doing that stupid thing again. Here, let's just pour out some divine justice. Gah, you know, just putting something in your life. But no, God, because you are a child of God, will put things in your life that are very hard so that it will correct your heart attitude so you will have a more right and more full vision of who God is. And that's exactly what's going on in Jonah's life. The question about the right to be angry is central to the whole book of Jonah. What right does Jonah have to demand that God should favor him and not others? And by reducing the question to the particular issue of the plant, God focused the question in a way that would cause Jonah to condemn himself by his own words. Jonah insisted in the strongest terms possible that the plant was important to him. It was significant in his eyes. He loved the plant. It delighted him. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but now that it was dead, he was furious. And he feels enough anger at the death of the plant that he is willing to subject himself to the plant's same fate. That plant wanted to die. I love that plant so much. God, kill me. I would rather suffer the same fate of that plant than actually have to live and continue living in a world where you're doing what you're doing. And so what happens in verses 10 and 11? God comes. God comes and He intervenes. It's Jonah's pity versus God pity. And all of this, Jonah had pity, but it was misplaced. See, the plant came in one day. Jonah did not create the plant, take care of the plant, or nurture the plant. However, God has done all of this for Nineveh. The people of Nineveh survive because God sustains them. The people of Nineveh wake up in the mornings when they are asleep at night because God was sustaining them. What rain when it comes in the rain cloud is because God was sustaining them. God was nurturing them. The reaping crops because God is nurturing them. The river that flowed through Nineveh flows because God was nurturing them. The plant appeared overnight, but Nineveh grew up over many months and years and has very many people in it. So how much more does it deserve care, concern, and pity? Nineveh has many people who are entrapped in their sinful lifestyle and don't know how to get out, who don't know their right hand from their left. So if Jonah cared about the plant, shouldn't God care about the city of Nineveh? And then you just have that odd little reference there at the very end. Right? Verse 11. So God's giving us like, well, if you, the emphatic you, if you care about a plant, how much more should I care about a city with like real living people in it? And he's doing a lesser to greater argument. He's saying, if you care about this thing, I mean, a plant is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. This city has people with eternal souls. Should I not care more about this city than you care for a plant that sprung up and died in one day. But there's that odd little phrase. There's 120,000 people who don't know the right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's like, you know, record scratch. Cattle, okay. Who gives two rips about the cattle in Nineveh, right? But it was just another simple point that God was making. The reference to animals makes, makes this idea come clear. God would even have every right to spare Nineveh if only there was cattle in it. 
That's how much God cares. Like, even if it was just like, I need you to go and preach judgment against a city full of 120,000 cattle. God is making the point, you would have every right to be obedient on the first act of me telling you and going doing that. Why? Because I care. That makes the city worthy enough for you to go and preach and show and extend mercy to it. And so then what happens? Boom. End of story. Off. Like, no resolution. The story builds, 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 builds. All the way up to the climax, all the way up to the crisis of the story. And usually every good story has some sort of resolution. The hero wins, the hero dies, the good guy gets, gets, his, um, gets his lady, the, the bad guy gets his, gets his due. But what we have is just a constant build, 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 boom, story's off. And it's meant to shock us. It's meant to go, yeah, 120,000 persons, right hand, left, all so much cattle. Okay, so, so what's Jonah do? But the narrator stops it right at the crisis there so that we will go, well, what did he do? Well, what would I do? And it's meant to bring us to that place where we start asking and going, if I were Jonah, how would I respond? See, we're meant to see ourselves as Jonah. Are we, you and me, making the same mistake that Jonah did? See, when it comes to responding to this text... That idea, that question, do you do well to be angry? What right do you have to be angry? This is the challenge of Jonah chapter 4. This is the challenge of the book. It's meant to be a mirror to where we hold up Jonah chapter 4. We look into it, and like a mirror that you look into in the morning, the reflection that should come back to you is this. You and I are like Jonah. See, I think the tendency is for us to be like Jonah, that buffoon, not me. But the way that God had the narrator under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this book with just that, that shocking stop to Jonah chapter 4 is for us to go, well, what happened? Like, like, where's the story go? Well, what did Jonah do? And it's meant for us to go, I don't know. Like, what would Jonah, like, well, what would I do? Like, how would I end this story? And it's meant for us to insert ourselves and realize, man, we have more Jonah-like tendencies than we would like to admit. The question, what right do you have to be angry? This question that comes from God to Jonah is the same question that God poses to us, the audience of this book. What God did in having compassion and extending mercy to Nineveh was right. Nineveh had great intrinsic worth in spite of its many objectionable characteristics. No one could have the right to doubt the appropriateness of God's finding worth in Nineveh, yet Jonah hated the whole business enough to die. So what it boils down to is this. Jonah cherished plant life more than human life. There was an issue going on in Jonah's heart. The, uh, the thing that was ruling the throne of Jonah's heart wasn't a desire to obey God, no matter the consequence or no matter the call, the thing that was ruling Jonah's heart is this. I cherish something more than I cherish God, and this something was his plant. I love this thing. I love when mercy is extended to me. This is the thing ruling Jonah's heart. In Jonah's economy, in Jonah's ordering some of, of, of his world, he can gladly shout, yes, salvation belongs to the Lord when it's extended to me. I'm exceedingly glad about that as long as it's only for me. But see, Jonah had misplaced pity. And so the question that comes for us is, what do we cherish more than mercy to the lost? 
I mean, that's the question. That's the rub. That's where the rubber hits the road. You may not be having a nature object lesson out in Iraq with a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind. But God was exposing an attitude of the heart. Jonah was cherishing something more than mercy being extended to the lost. So the question, the principle that jumps all the way to us today in Springfield, Illinois, is what attitude of the heart is ruling the throne of your heart other than mercy extended to the lost? Perhaps it's pride of place. Maybe the whole attitude on your heart is this. God, if I talk about Jesus at work, I'm not going to get that promotion. I'm too prideful to actually submit myself to my God. I cherish pride of place in my workplace more than I cherish obeying the God of the universe. So what do you do? You act like Jonah in that moment. Maybe you cherish... Maybe the thing that's ruling the throne of your heart is fear of man. Maybe it's God. I know you're calling me, like you called Jonah, to open my mouth and talk to my neighbor. Heck no, I'm not going to do that. I am scared to death. And in that moment, fear is ruling your heart and not the God of all creation. See, the challenge for you and me is to work through this thing and go, God, what is causing me? What am I cherishing more? What is the thing in my heart that is stopping me from being fully obedient? Because see, the other thing that we see in Jonah comes from back in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. For Jonah to show up and go, God, the it, the repenting of Nineveh, the relenting of you, God, this thing makes me angry. See, Jonah had no love for the Assyrians. They hurt him and they hurt his people. The fact that God extended mercy to an enemy angered Jonah. So the question that comes to us again from this, another way that we can respond is ask, do we want mercy to come to people who have offended us? Like, right, we live in a fallen world. It's not hard to find people who have offended you. If you can raise your hand and go, offense free. Nobody has ever offended me, ever. Then I'm going to ask you to repent of your lying. Because you have been offended just as I have been offended. I've said something bonehead. You said something bonehead. I said something with the right heart attitude. You took it the wrong way. You said something with the right heart attitude. I bristled up in anger. Whatever it is, you have been offended. And the question then becomes, do we want mercy to come to people who have offended us? Maybe you have parents who have abused you. Maybe you have parents who have abused you emotionally, physically, sexually, verbally. What is your heart attitude toward them? Is it, I want them to go to hell? Or is it, I want them to know the same mercy that I've received? Maybe it's a friend who has hurt you. A friend who had good intention, but misspoke, and you took it the wrong way. Do you want to extend mercy, or are you going to harbor anger at this person until the day you die? Maybe it's the boss who has belittled you. The one person you go out of your way to avoid at work. 
you're putting in more energy in avoiding this person than you are in actually just confronting this person and getting it over with. Maybe it's a spouse that has offended you because they have got aggressive or passive-aggressive tendencies. And it's just these little things that have built up over the year, these little nagging barbs that they just sort of do to try to manipulate the situation. And then it just builds and builds and builds. And in the end, you have harbored so much resentment toward that spouse that you would wish they would just disappear because you would rather see them leave than extend mercy to them. Maybe it's that annoying neighbor that God is calling you to share the gospel with. Maybe it's that spouse that is separated, or maybe it's that spouse who has been divorced. What are you doing when you look at that person and go, I would rather see them thrown in hell. I would rather see the judgment of God poured out on this people, this person, this place, than me be used by God to extend mercy to them. I mean, just this past week, a perfect case in point is the, the lead guy for the Westboro Baptist Church was Fred Phelps, and the guy died. 84 years old, I think it was. I mean, Fred Phelps, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I mean, Fred Phelps was an awful guy. And he did so much damage toward the gospel of Jesus Christ that's nearly unimaginable. Now, by all accounts and by all means, my assumption is this guy was not a believer in Jesus Christ. So when he died, according to Scripture, he stood before God as it appointed for man to stand before God once when he dies and then comes the judgment. My assumption is that Fred Phelps is probably in hell. But what is your heart attitude in that? Like when you heard that news or you find like, yeah, Fred Phelps finally getting what he gets. Or is your heart weeping? Because listen, hell is awful. We don't want people to go to hell. The Bible says hell is an awful place. Darkness, a worm that eats and constantly destroying, thirst that's never quenched, a place of fire and a place of torment. We don't desire for anybody to go there. Is your heart weeping that Fred Phelps heard these things and was able to be exposed to the Bible? He would use the Bible as a means for those awful, nasty Christ destroying things he was saying and going, God, I'm so I'm weeping for Fred Phelps because when he's been there 10,000 years, it's going to be just as if the torment had first begun. He's not going to reach an end to the eternal torment that he's going to receive. But what if it was the opposite? What if right before he died, what if the Holy Spirit came and turned his heart and he saw, I've lived 84 years being in direct opposition to the gospel. And the Holy Spirit came and changed his heart and he received the mercy and the grace and the goodness of Christ crucified for his sins. And now we have the message that Fred Phelps, who spent 84 years in direct opposition to Jesus Christ is actually now in heaven. That would align a little bit more what's going on here. Do we go, man, I want justice to come to that guy. Or do we rejoice because the mercy we've received is the same mercy that he may have received? See, your sins are just as heinous as Fred Phelps' sins. 
If you could somehow stand before God and go, God, the only thing that I have ever done in my life was one time I lied to my parents. And then Fred Phelps stood up and he said, for 84 years of my life, I was on a gospel-destroying mission, living out hell on earth, using every means necessary I could to destroy the good name of Jesus Christ. You and I, there's not a difference there. His sins are just as heinous as that example of sins. Why? Because it's against God. If you could say, I've only lied once in my life, or if you can say, I've spent a lifetime speaking things against God, the fact that mercies come to you is just enough the same amount of rejoicing that should be in this case that if mercy would have come to him. See, mercy and grace and salvation are sweet to the taste of the person who has a robust theology of sin because would you realize man, when Christ died on the cross, when God's wrath was being poured out on Him, like it actually should have been me. Like the nails, hands and feet should have been me. Crown of thorns should have been me. Spitting on the face should have been me. Pulling of the beard should have been me. Spear into the side should have been me. God's eternal wrath should have been on me. But in every one of those instances, it was poured out on the perfect Lamb, the spotless Lamb of God, who did none of those things. And in full obedience, what does He do? He goes to the cross and He receives all of that for you. See, like, that's the good. And when you've tasted that, when you have, like, a, a robust theology of sin and going, you know what, my sin deserved that, not Christ. So now that I have tasted and I have seen, my hope is I want to take that out to my city because I have received mercy and I have received grace. The good news of Jesus Christ has been applied to my heart. So, Holy Spirit, please help me. The next time you nudge me to open my mouth to go, God, I, I'm scared to death. God, I don't know what to do here. God, I'm going to say something and it's going to be a knucklehead statement. It's going to be the most idiotic thing that probably anyone could ever say in this moment. But you're calling me to do it. I'm doing it. You open it and go, God, there it is. You, you empower. You take those words. You apply those words to this person's heart. Your job and my job to see the city dumped on its head for the good news of Jesus Christ isn't how eloquent can you be. It's how obedient to the leading of the Spirit can you be. See, and so here's the good news of all this. What I'm saying, and I've said this over and over again, what I'm saying is not so that we can walk out of here in shame, guilt, and condemnation. But what I'm saying this is so that we can check ourselves against the Scriptures and so the Scriptures will come and have authority over us. And so I can go, man, I see this in my heart. Scriptures, is this right? God goes, no, it's not right. So then I go, mold me, make me right. And then I turn my eyes to the author and the perfecter of my faith, Jesus Christ, and go, there is a fountain of grace at the foot of the cross. And so I'm running to the cross and I'm running to Christ. And I'm going to look to Jesus as my only hope here and go, Jesus, I, I see Jonah tendencies in my heart here. I see Jonah tendencies in my heart here. And I don't like it. Jesus, do something. And what does Jesus do? He goes, I've already done something. Because see, just as Jonah went outside the city... He was angry and pleading for the city's destruction. Jesus stands on the outside of Jerusalem. He's weeping because he knows of the destruction that's coming its way. 
In Matthew 23, Jesus stands on the edge of Jerusalem, the outside of the city, looking over the city, and He's weeping, going, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, we have a greater Jonah. We don't have to just go, I've got Jonah tendencies in my heart. Who's my hope? Jonah? Oh, no! Because Jonah didn't do it right. But Jonah points forward to the greater prophet, Jesus. And what we can do is go, man, I see Jonah-like tendencies. What's my hope? And then I lift my eyes to the horizon, to the author and the perfecter of my faith. And I see the prophet, Jesus, who was living this outrightly. Just as Jonah was standing outside the city begging God to die because God's wrath was turned away from Nineveh and mercy had come to Nineveh. Jesus, on the other hand, goes outside the city. He is pinned to the cross, guided by the will of God to receive the wrath of God, dying the death that you and I deserve so that mercy would come to you and me. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. See, Jonah points us to ourselves that we have issues and then he points us to somebody better than himself. That's what the Old Testament does. It's constantly going, hey, see me? You need to be looking at Jesus. Hey, see me? Look at Jesus. See what I did? Look at Jesus. See what they're doing? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And Jonah is screaming from the entirety of the book, look at Jesus. That's our hope in this moment. Christ is the greater prophet. In conviction, we look to Jesus as our precedent. Our city can know the gospel of grace because Jesus categorically did what Jonah could only point to. And this is the good news for our city. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for these five weeks as we've gone and we've looked over what Jonah has to say to us. God, it's been a challenge to me. I mean, I'm up, I'm up on the front preaching this stuff, and I know that my heart is like Jonah. God, my only assumption is I'm not rowing this boat alone, but my brothers and sisters who hear me also find themselves in this place. God, we're not blowing smoke. We're not trying to say the right things. We're not trying to manipulate you. But when we say we want the Holy Spirit to empower us so that our city will know Jesus Christ, this is a desire. I believe it's your desire. There are many in this city. It's, I, don't, I think it's just interesting that Nineveh is nearly like Springfield. Nineveh 120, Springfield 120. Nineveh had much cattle. <laughs> We've got much cattle, much, animal, much, much things that are worthy to go. You know what? Springfield is worthy of receiving God's mercy. Why? Because they were created in the image of God. They have intrinsic value and worth. God, help me not to rebuke the leading of the Spirit. Help my brothers and sisters see this. Thank God for mercy. God, I thank you for grace. I thank you that you were patient and kind long-suffering, steadfast in love. So God, may we press into that. Thank You for speaking to us through Your Word for these five weeks. Would You challenge us, grow us, and mold us. In Christ's name I pray.